Welcome to the Lift Church podcast. We pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to live up to your God-given potential. Well, we're in week two of Jesus and the covenants. And last week I spoke about the Abrahamic covenant. Anyone remember what we spoke about? Oh my gosh. I spoke my little heart out. No one remembers. I know there was a lot of content. The podcast is available. But to give you a quick rundown, covenants in the Bible are really important um, things that kind of form the backbone of what God is wanting to do. A covenant basically is a chosen relationship between two parties where they make binding promises to one another. That is basically what a covenant is. And in the Abrahamic covenant, we find God making a covenant with a man named Abraham. And Abraham uh, basically is, is, God makes all these amazing promises to Abraham. And the amazing thing is that the kind of covenant that God made with Abraham was one that was normally made between equals, which is extremely surprising that God would want to take a mere human being, one of his creation, and say, I consider you as my equal. And not only that, when God... When Abraham was about to get ready to make promises to God in exchange for God's promises, God puts Abraham to sleep so that he doesn't play any part in this covenant. And so he receives a gracious promise from God, many gracious promises from God. And that is the sign of how God wants to have relationship with us. Not one where we earn His grace, not one where we are making promises to Him, but one where we are able to confidently enter into His presence and to receive all the promises that He has made to us. And that is the, Abra- that's the, the, the heart behind the Abrahamic covenant. Specifically to Abraham, God said to him that you're going to have an heir, you're going to have a son, and your son is going to have lots of kids and their kids are going to have lots of kids and basically you're going to have lots of descendants and your descendants one day will uh, be taken into slavery in a foreign nation and then after 400 years i'm going to release them and i'm going to take them to this very land that you're in as an inheritance and that was god's specific covenant to abraham and so what we're going to do today is that we're going to fast forward so we know that Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had 12 sons. They all had many sons, and they started to multiply. They went to Egypt, where Joseph, you can know, uh, the, the multicolored coat guy, um, prince of Egypt. That, no, not prince of Egypt. Sorry, wrong. Joseph, Joseph. That different guy. Sorry, confused myself. But Joseph went to Egypt. Um, he was sold into slavery in Egypt, and he becomes a prime minister, saves people from a crazy famine. You can read all about this in Genesis. And the Israelites begin to multiply to the point where their scholars believe that there was about a million of them in slavery. For 400 years, they were in slavery. The Egyptians put them into slavery because they were scared that they were going to overpopulate and take over the whole nation. So puts them into slavery for 400 years. Not a single one of the Israelites understood what freedom was anymore. Let's keep that in mind. It's an important little detail. And then from there, God raises a man named Moses to be one that would bring freedom into uh, the land of Israel once again and take them out from Egypt. God brings the 10 plagues. Now, this one, this one you can read, you can watch it, Friends of Egypt, and you can also watch it as more recently uh, a live action one with Christian Bale as Moses. It's called Exodus Gods and Kings. If you like watching movies, those are good ones to watch. They're not exactly uh, from the Bible, but they give you a good idea, a visual idea of what took place. And so Moses leads the people out of Israel, 
and leads them towards what is now known as the promised land, the land of Canaan. And along the way, they stop at a mountain called Mount Sinai. And this is where the second covenant that we're going to be covering comes from. I call it the Mosaic Covenant. Some people call it the Sinaitic Covenant because they made it at Mount Sinai. Um, and more commonly, it is known as the law. The law. Um, and you can read about this for yourself. We don't have time today to read lots. Of, well, we're going to be looking at lots of different Bible passages. But if you want to read the whole Mosaic Covenant, it's found in Exodus 19 to 24. And then it's expounded and expanded upon in the next few books. So if you read... Uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they're all unpacking the Mosaic Covenant or the law. All right, so now that's the backdrop. Now, so I want to talk about this covenant. It's a very extremely important covenant. And if we don't understand this covenant, it colors a lot of what we understand in our Christian walk. And so basically, here, here we find Moses receiving what we call the law, the Ten Commandments, plus, 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 right? And um, it is a different kind of covenant to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, the Abrahamic covenant was made between two equals. The Mosaic covenant was what we call a suzerainty vassal covenant. Basically means that there's a suzerain who is this uh, uh, powerful, more powerful party. And then there's the vassals, the ones who are going to be coming under the protection and the blessing of the suzerain. Suzerainty vassal covenant. Now, so a suzerainty vessel covenant, it always follows with three sections. There are three sections to every suzerainty vessel covenant. I know this is just a little bit of background. We'll get to the fun stuff in just a moment. But the start of any of those kinds of covenants is a preamble. A preamble. You can see the three sections, the preamble. What does the preamble cover? It is basically where the suzerain, who is often in ancient times called father, by the way, so they call the suzerainty vassal covenant a father-son covenant sometimes. And is where the suzerain outlines how they have already been gracious to the vessels. This is a very important part of the covenant. The, the God in, the, in Exodus 19 says, I am the Lord who has brought you out of Egypt. At this point, the vassals, the Israelites, did not need to do anything to access the grace of God. This is something that God chose to do. And so in this covenant, there is built into it a tiny section that explains who this suzerain is, who this powerful being is, who this powerful party is. Why should we listen to you? Why should we come under your protection? Because he's already protected. He's one who has already shown grace and mercy. And so that is a preamble. So after God explains, I'm the Lord who has brought you out of Egypt. So this is what you need to do. This is the second section. It is known as the stipulations. It's also known as regulations. Or as we've mentioned, it's known as the law. And specifically in the Mosaic Covenant, tradition says that there are 613 laws. 613. So that's why we're not going to be reading Exodus 19 to 24 right now. Because you'll be reading lots of things that you can and cannot do. Which sounds like a lot. And it is quite a lot. And these are really important stipulations. In fact, 
uh, uh, culturally speaking, in those times when these kinds of covenants were made, the, the, the text of the covenant was kept in their temple, the local temple, and it was brought out yearly and it was read through so that the people would all remember what they were supposed to do. And the stipulations are important because of the third section, which is the blessings and the curses. If you obey the stipulations, you, be, you will be blessed by the suzerain. If you disobey the stipulations, you'll be cursed by the suzerain. Now, let me read to you Deuteronomy 28, 20 to 24, which is a tiny part of the curses. There's actually a lot more curses. And as you can see, there's a lot of stuff there. Let me read it to you. The Lord, so if you disobey, if, this is if you break the stipulations. If you don't listen to the stipulations, this is what happens. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land that you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. Sign me up. Where do I put my life down? This is pretty heavy stuff. And if you've got any non-Christian friends that are particularly anti-Christian, they will point you to this kind of stuff and go, what the heck are you doing? Why are you believing and trusting in this God who basically says that if you disobey me, I will waste you completely. You will die and then you will die. This is pretty heavy stuff. And in fact, the Israelites, when they heard all of this covenant, they were like, we will obey. That was their reaction. We will obey. And I think we need to spend some time understanding why. Because something significant is happening here that in our Western mindset, we don't necessarily get. You see, the people of Israel, as I've already mentioned, they have never understood freedom. They had been in slavery for 400 years. All they had known was slavery, oppression, working for someone else who had the power of life and death in their hands. That was what they were used to. And now that they were taken out of Egypt and taken toward the promised land, they, they, they hadn't reached it yet. They were at probably around a halfway mark. They got to Mount Sinai and God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And this covenant is a covenant where I will be your God and you will be my people. You might have heard that kind of language before. It is repeated many times in the books of Exodus to Deuteronomy. I am your God and you will be my people. What is God saying? You used to be under someone else's jurisdiction, but with this covenant, you are under mine. And as much as some of the curses sound really terrible, we didn't read the blessings. We did not read what God was going to do if people were obedient. And, and, and so we have this, this, this document, if you will, this, this agreement between God and His people, and it's very important. Why? Because God wasn't just taking his people to the promised land. He was going to ensure that they stayed in the promised land. 
If you can imagine one million people, not a single one of them has ever been in government before. And suddenly they needed to govern their society and themselves. What do you think is going to happen? What do you think it's going to be like? It's like taking a whole bunch of primary school kids, nothing against primary school kids, they are lovely, but they don't know what life is like. They have always been under someone else's protection. So it's like a million people coming together and saying, hey, we want to set up a nation. Oh, these kids look great. Why don't we put you as prime minister? You are in charge of finances. You look like a smart kid. You're Asian. You know what to do with money. And then... Um, uh, on and on you go, and, and you create parliament out of primary school kids, and you try to exist as a, uh, an effective society with these kids who have never governed before. What do you think is going to happen? And so what God did at Mount Sinai, we're saying, no, 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 you guys don't understand what it's like to have to govern, to be able to distinguish right from wrong, for you to be able to live in harmony, for you to actually have an identity. And that's what the stipulations were. They weren't stipulations because God wanted to oppress His people again. In fact, they were stipulations to keep them safe. Do you know that scholars look at the stipulations, at the law that was written in our first five books of our Bible today, and they look at the ancient society, and they said, Israel was far above any ancient culture in terms of their understanding of morality and ethics. You know, in these stipulations, one of them was saying, you will not have incest, basically. You will not have sexual relationships with your own family. Do you know that it was 1,500 years after that that the neighboring nations around Israel decided incest is bad? This was not to oppress people, not to take away their sexual freedom, not to take away their everyday choice. This was to protect them. And scholars look into these 613 stipulations and go, yes, yeah, some of them were very culturally based. Some of them were around like certain ceremonial things. But most of them were written to protect this new nation. And if you, I did this. I went on Google. And you can do this, and you say, how many laws does Australia have? And I found this legal website. I don't have any lawyers here, because you can tell me a bit better. I said, how many laws are there in Australia? This legal website said thousands. They didn't bother to tell you how many thousands. There could be 100,000 laws that us as Australians obey. For us to enjoy the benefits of the society that we live in today, we obey thousands of laws. We obey these laws so that we get to live together in harmony. Thousands for Australia. 613 for the Israelites. Who's in a more oppressive society? You tell me. You tell me, how is this supposed to match up? Why do we look at the Bible and go, God is so oppressive, when we actually live under thousands of laws and we understand it because we know that God actually, although we understand that in Australia, we are blessed people. 
we understand that most of us are able to walk around our neighborhoods and our streets and not be worried that someone's going to mug us or steal something from us or kill us. We know that there is a safety net in our culture that is unparalleled across the world where there is health, there is education. We get to benefit of all of these things. And so we go, okay, we understand there's those blessings and so we will obey the stipulations. That is what the Mosaic Covenant is about. But do you know that there was something built in to this covenant that is extremely surprising? It's surprising because with only 613 laws to govern the land, God already knew that people were not going to be able to keep them all. So what will happen? Do you think that if someone did one little, I mean, in that society, I can understand that if you did something that was a grievous crime, for example, murder, the, the full weight of the consequence would be laid out. And we will want that too. If any of you committed murder, I will want something to happen to you. Sorry. This is the way that human justice works. We understand that something needs to happen. But if you maybe accidentally did something wrong, does that mean that you will be plagued with diseases until you have been destroyed? What would happen? It's, it, it just sounds a little bit crazy that these kinds of consequences would befall you for something small. But that's where God built in to this covenant a way to deal with this. And the way that it was dealt with was something called the Day of Atonement. And let me just explain it to you. I won't take too long with it today. But basically on the Day of Atonement, there were three animals that were required. I know older covenants back in the day required animals. I'm not going to be as, apparently I was a bit graphic last week. Someone told me off and I was like, really? All I talked was about a river of blood. But anyway, and three animals, a cow and two goats. Sounds like a joke. But the cow is used to sanctify the high priest as well as the temple. And then the two goats specifically were used as the atoning sacrifices. And um, so basically what, what would happen is that uh, two, the two goats were brought before the high priest on this day of atonement. And the high priest would draw lots. So he would pick one of the two. And that goat became the atoning sacrifice for the whole nation. It would be sacrificed. It would lose his life on behalf of the rest of the nation. Basically, what was happening was that God had instituted in this Mosaic covenant, in the law, that if you had done anything wrong, the penalty is all those curses that we had just read about plus more, but it would be all put upon this animal, a substitute. God built into the covenant an understanding that He wasn't necessarily always going to bring it directly on you. There was an ability to substitute yourself out of that position. Pretty cool. And so this goat would be killed. But interestingly, there was another goat. There was actually another goat. So there was one goat that was the atoning sacrifice, lost its life so that we don't have to pay the penalty of our sin. By the way, in the New Testament, it tells us that the wages of our sin is death. And we already know, and you might know where I'm kind of leading with this, but we know that because of Jesus, that death has already been satisfied, right? But there was another goat. 
And that goat didn't get off scot-free. In fact, this goat was called the scapegoat, and I'm going to read to you why it was called the scapegoat. Leviticus 16, 20-22 says this, When Aaron, has, Aaron's a high priest, has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and a man shall release it in the wilderness. This goat, the scapegoat, according to tradition, I read this a little while ago, the whole of Israel would be waiting to see what this goat does. It was all the sins were confessed over this goat, sent down to the wilderness as far as the, 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 his minder were taking quite a distance away and then the minder would come back and then they would see if the goat comes back or not. If the goat comes back, it says that God has not forgiven. But if the goat doesn't come back, oh, we're forgiven. Pretty crazy. That's actually traditionally what they would do. But there was something that kind of got me thinking. Before this goat was released into the wilderness, its friend had already paid the price for the sin. So what's the purpose of this goat? One already died. Why? What's with this, what's with this scapegoat? And I started thinking about it, and I started to realize that God was giving a visual cue a reminder, something for the Israelites to constantly remember about how He deals with our sin. See, there are often two effects of our sin, guilt and shame. And the goat that lost its life was to pay for our guilt. See, guilt arises from the sense that I have done something wrong. I know I've done something wrong, and the feeling of guilt is assuaded, is, is paid for when you've done something about the thing that you've done wrong. You paid for it, basically. And so that goat, by dying, paid for our guilt. But something else remains of our sin. It's a sense of shame. Shame is much more deep, and it deals with our identity. And when you have done something wrong, not only do you think that you've done something wrong, you start to maybe wonder whether I have done something wrong because I'm wrong. There's something wrong with me. That's what shame does inside of us. It begins to inform us of our identity. It starts to question, yeah, sure, that guilt was paid for, but what about this following year? As much as you know that you've done something wrong, are you able to step away from your sin? Probably not, because that's just who you are. You're a sinner. You don't know any better. That's just the way that you are. That's one of the effects of sin on our lives, that we don't actually think that we can get any better. One of the surest signs that you struggle with shame is that thinking about a hopeful future is extremely difficult for you. In fact, I know many people that, that say to me that for them to even consider that next year is going to be any better is a very difficult exercise. They don't see hope in tomorrow. Why? 
because there's something inside of them informing them of who they are and it's saying that you are broken, you are unworthy and you are less than. And so you will never get anything better. Such people settle for a second-rate, mediocre lives because they still carry the effects of sin into their identity and who they are. God knows that. God has always known that. And so for the Israelites, they got a visual reminder that the wages of sin is death and is substituted for. And then they got a visual reminder that their shame is actually also dealt with. They got a visual reminder that as much as sin has been paid for, who they are as people, all their brokenness, all their shame could be put on this second goat which was then driven in a way into the wilderness, never to come back. The Bible tells us that God's love is so great that our sins are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And some of us are still relating to God as though we've got a chip on our shoulder, that we've got a hole in our heart, that we have got something inside of us that keeps drawing us back to our sin and it keeps drawing us back to the things that are wrong. And you can just consider that in yourself. Maybe it's pornography, maybe it's lust, maybe it's anger, maybe it's lying, maybe it's insecurity, maybe it's envy, maybe, maybe it's all of those things and you think that nothing will ever change and nothing will ever get better because that's just who I am. And God says, no, no, no. That was taken away from you. I see you differently from the way that you see yourself. You see, we call this series Jesus and the Covenants. Why? Because all of the covenants in the Old Testament were a sign and a type of what Jesus has actually accomplished. And so when Jesus died on the cross for our sin, He paid for our guilt. But do you know that when He rose again from the dead, He removed our shame from us because He has given us a new identity. This is told to us in the Bible. We need to understand that this is the way that God relates to us. In Hebrews 7, 23 to 27, it says, this. Now there have been many of those priests before Jesus since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely, completely, not just deal with your guilt, but also deal with your shame. Not just deal with the consequences of your sin, but also to restore you to wholeness and restoration. So He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. Jesus is standing in the gap. The Bible also teaches us in another passage that when God sees us, He sees us through the lens of Jesus and what He has done. We have been given this righteousness, this new identity from God, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. There used to be this song that we used to sing, and it was like, do you still feel the nails every time I fall? You know, that's one of the worst theological mistakes in a song. I used to sing that because it reminded me that I need to always look to Jesus. And maybe that was the right attitude. But every time I made a little mistake, I was like, I'm the one that's driving the nails into Jesus' hands. But do you know that Jesus died once and that was sufficient? What was 
what that song was speaking into was my shame. And it was holding the shame inside of me. You are the one that killed Jesus. You are the one that killed Jesus. And Jesus is sitting on the throne and saying, I'm, I'm alive, mate. You're not driving any nails into me. That was done. That was dusted. I was able to save completely, and my once and for all death has already accomplished that. See, in Jesus, we have the guilt offering and we have the scapegoat. In Jesus, our sins have been paid for and our identity has been restored. That is what Jesus has done. So what, do we, what are we left with? What are we left with? What, what are we supposed to do about this? Remember that, Jesus, uh, that, 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 God had re- that God had redeemed the people from Egypt a place of slavery, and he was taking them to the promised land, but he also needed to show them how to live. That is the same with us. Jesus doesn't just save us from our sin. He now wants to teach us how to live this righteous life that he has for us. And so Jesus summarizes the law and the prophets in this way. In, in I've got it in here. Somewhere. In Mark 12, in Mark 12, 29 to 31, Jesus says and summarizes all the commandments in this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are what he says. The whole law hinges on this aspect. For us to go from living in slavery into living in the promised land, in the promises of God, we need to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. But as I was thinking about it, this is really important for us to understand. I used to see those two stipulations as such a weight on my shoulder. I just need to love God better. I just need to love God more. I just need to love God more. I I, I don't know why. I I just keep failing Him. I just keep driving those nails into His hands. You know what the Bible teaches us about how we love God? It tells us. It tells us in 1 John 4 verse 19 that we love because He first loved. That's extremely important for you to fulfill the first stipulation. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength isn't done in and of yourself. It is done with a revelation that you are loved. It is done with a realization that the day of atonement has already taken place. It is done with a realization that for God so loved me that he gave his one and only son that I wouldn't perish, but I would have eternal life. And in my journey with him, the more I realize how much he loves me, the more I love him. And this is the crazy thing. I've been doing this journey for quite a while, and I think that I really understand God's love. And then something happens, and I'm like, you still love me even more than I realize? Do you know that the depths of God's love is indescribable? We are all on this journey of continuing to understand His love. But this is the thing about love. It needs to be accepted. The thing about love is that it cannot be one-sided. It is, it's, God can do all of these things and, and have all this care and have this commitment to you, but you won't Receive the benefits if you don't want it. The more I go through my life, the more I get into different kinds of relationships, and the more I realize this, that I can love you with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if you don't want it, after a while, you're not going to receive any of the benefits, and I'm just going to be really frustrated with you. 
That's the way it works. Even married couples, just because you say, I do, doesn't mean that you really do. The number of couples that we've sat with and said, I love you. Then, then why are you doing all this? Why, why is it so hard for you to trust each other? Why is it so hard for you to receive love? Because it's still a choice. For us to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, mind, and soul, and strength is, is actually, actually understanding that He loves us with all of His hearts, mind, and soul, mind, and strength. And suddenly, when I understand that, then I am able to then resuscitate, okay? Then I'm able to go into the second stipulation, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And again, I used to think that, oh, I've got to love people more. I've got to just accept them. I've got to, you know, keep pouring out for them. And, and, and it gets tiring, doesn't it? I know so many people that say, I want to be a loving person that fulfills the law, the new law of God, which is to love people. And, and I'm loving people and I'm giving people and I'm doing this for them and et cetera, et cetera. But do you know the, uh, that, that little phrase, love your neighbor as yourself? You see, without the first stipulation, you can't do the second stipulation. Because you can't love people unless you love yourself. So really, the whole law comes back to whether we know that we are loved and how we see ourselves. See, the thing about the relationship that I have with God is I understand that He loves me more. I actually want to know Him more. I'm actually drawn into his presence more. What happens then? 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. And it says this, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We are being transformed into his image. The more... I understand God's love for me. The more open and vulnerable I am to Him, the more I'm contemplating His glory. Bible teaches us that I am being transformed into His image. And that used to confuse me. Why does God want me to look like Him? Why? Why does God want you to look like Him? Why would He need that? What was... And then I realized God wasn't trying to transform you into something different. He was trying to restore you to your original design. Each and every single one of us were created in the image of God. Genesis says this, when God created Adam and Eve, He created them in His image. Being transformed into His image is the original design. It's a beautiful design. You are beautifully designed. Some of you need to hear this. God's not trying to transform you into something different. He's trying to transform you into the original, the original design. So where does your hope come from? It doesn't come from you being different. It comes from you being restored. It doesn't come from you trying harder. It, it comes back to you understanding who you are. And so the more I love God and the more I'm being transformed into my original image, then... I get to love people. If not, there is always conditions attached. I know this in myself. I used to love people so that I get affirmation, 
so that I get encouragement, so that I get acceptance, so that I get love. It was coming from a place of need, but the more I journey in God, I'm not perfect. I still have to come back to God every now and then and go, why is this so difficult? It's because there are still things in me that has not been fully restored. It is a journey for the rest of my life, but God is not putting this stipulation to wear you down. He puts these stipulations in place for you to live, for you to live, for you to, for you to live. Understand this. Why you're gathered here today is not to make God happy. God already loves you. God already has more for you. It is us getting to a place where we're taking the veils off our face in order that we can accept His love, understand our design, and live out of that design. This was written thousands of years before Jesus came. Because God knew that us as humanity will always struggle with guilt, always struggle with shame, will always struggle with things that take us away rather than help us draw close. We can get the band up this morning. I know I've gone on a little bit over time, but if I can just have five more minutes. Where are you at? Perhaps you are here this morning and you're hearing all of this and you're going, man, who's this God that, who's this God that, God, that, that, that Dave's talking about? Because I've always thought that God demanded all these stipulations, 613 of them. Are you serious? No. His heart is not to burden you. His heart is to release you. There is a way that we can access that life. And that way starts with us saying, God, I need you. I receive that love. So this morning, I want to lead you in a prayer that will accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So everyone, close your eyes for a moment. If you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I know that I have sinned. I know that I deserve its consequences. But I also know that you came to earth to die on a cross for me. And you rose again that I might have life. God, I want that life. I invite you to be my Lord and my Savior. Amen. Thank you for tuning in today. If you would like to find out more about Lyft, check out our website at theliftchurch.com.au.